Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago and uh, coming to you on October 2nd, 2023. We've got uh, a great show today. Some interesting things happening in the world of marijuana law and uh, culture that we're going to address and we're going to talk about. Uh, We've got an update on the uh, Tedeschi Trucks shows with Warren Haynes uh, in Boston and with Trey and Nora Jones in uh, Madison Square Garden. Um, And today we're going all Jerry. So let's uh, kick it off with the first song of the day. to laugh it takes a train to cry a great bob dylan tune this is uh jerry and merle and they are playing 50 years ago today october 2nd 1973 at winterland in san francisco um now this was during a period of time when they did a lot of shows at keystone and smaller venues so even though uh, winterland was not a a huge venue by any uh measure uh it was still larger than a lot of the places where they had been playing and uh, they came out this night and they, they really sizzled. Now, ironically, uh, this version of it takes a lot to laugh and it takes a train to cry uh, is just from about 10 nights later at Keystone. The reason being that the archive.org uh, show for the October 2nd show uh, is missing this opener and uh, one or two of the others from the set. So I had to jump over uh, to the Keystone show on October 12th to get this song. The rest of today is all coming from October 2nd, but it was a, a period of time for Jerry and Merle where they were playing a lot. The, the Keystone recordings uh, that are so famous with Jerry and Merle uh, were created out of a lot of these sessions. And uh, it was a time when they were really doing a lot of experimenting, right? 70, 71, they were switching over to Americana and, uh, you know, all different types of music. And, and then uh, Jerry and Merle met up and uh, really the rest is history. And, uh, what a great tune this is. It's a song that's written by Bob Dylan. Uh, it was originally released on his album Highway 61 Revisited, which was released on August 30th, 1965. Uh, it was recorded barely a month earlier in July. Uh, and the song was also included on an early uh, European Dylan compilation album entitled Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, Volume 2. 
an earlier alternate version of the song uh, has been released in different takes, beginning with the appearance of one take on the Bootleg Series Volumes 1 through 3. Uh, those are rare and unreleased, 61 through 91. It's been covered by Stephen Stills, Leon Russell, Marion Faithful, Taj Mahal, Paul Westerberg, Robin Hitchcock, and Lucinda Williams, uh, just to name a few. Uh, Dylan's live, this is interesting, Dylan's live debut of the song came as part of Dylan's controversial electric set backed by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Al Cooper at the Newport Folk Festival on July 25th, 1965, immediately after Maggie's Farm, which was the first song he came out and played electric. After being heckled during the electric set, and especially during this uh, this tune, uh, it takes a lot to laugh at Train to Cry by fans who wanted Dylan to play acoustic, he did recur to return and played acoustic versions of Mr. Tambourine Man, and it's all over now, Baby, Bu- Baby Blue. But th- th- this uh, performance of It Takes a Lot to Laugh and a Train to Cry featured jamming by both guitarist Bloomfield and organist Al Cooper. Now, what's interesting about this is that he did change after he was getting booed and getting heckled. By that time, the, the, the horse is out of the barn, as they say, right? There's people who heard the electrical jamming, and I think uh, Dylan went back and listened to it later. And, you know, th- th- that, that was such a pivotal moment, I think, the fact that Bob Dylan was going electric both in his own personal career uh, and what it meant to a lot of other performers at the time who weren't necessarily like the Rolling Stones or bands that were coming out, even the Beatles who were just playing, you know, straight uh, rock and roll, sometimes hardcore rock and roll. Uh, But this was a whole genre of music that was now going to be coming online uh, with electric backing. And although there's nothing wrong with acoustic versions of it too, there's many, many of us out there uh, who are very happy that the, uh, uh, transition over to electric was made and um every version of this song i've ever heard uh that's electric no matter who's playing it um is is just a wonderful thing so of course that raises the question what about our buddies the grateful dead and they did play it seven times uh the first time was on june 10th 1973 at rfk stadium uh so right around this period of time that we're focused on um, and interestingly, that version of it was played with the Allman Brothers on stage with them. That was a big show. We've talked about this show before, uh, June 10th, 73 at RFK with the Allman Brothers. Both bands played their own uh, sets, and then they came out uh, uh, for a, a final set together. And this is one of the tunes they played. And I have to tell you, um, if you have a chance to check this out, you should, because there are dueling uh guitar solos first jerry uh, unleashes for about a minute and a half and then just a few minutes later dickie betts uh, takes off into an absolutely incredible jam and maybe someday we'll we'll go and we'll feature this show entirely and really get a taste of of all of this but it was just a uh, a wonderful wonderful show and uh produced just a killer version of this tune uh after that the dead played it five times in 91 once more on March 16th, 92 at the Spectrum in Philly, and that was it. Um, then they just, they tucked it away. Uh, disappointing to deadheads everywhere, but, you know, the the dead had bigger plans or other things that they wanted to do. Uh, the song is actually released uh, by the dead on their postcards of the hanging in March, uh, album March of 2020, excuse me, 2002. And uh, it's a collection of, live covers by the dead of a variety of Dylan songs. And as we we've discussed at length on this show, and I'm sure we will again in the future, uh, Dylan may be the band that the dead covered more than any other. 
they, they covered everything with Bobby singing some of the songs, Jerry singing some of the songs, Phil singing uh, uh, one of the songs. And they just really loved it. They, they loved his style. They loved his songs. They loved his music. And it was um, very educational for those of us who were also Dylan fans to have a chance to hear some of these songs played in a slightly different way, meaning, you know, a full-on electric band that was really jamming them out all the way. And we talked about how uh, right before the 1986 tour, when they toured with Dylan and they were trying to have some rehearsals with him, how uncomfortable it was for Dylan initially and when he was determining whether or not he even belonged with the group because sometimes he didn't even recognize the way they were playing some of their tunes. But of course, that story had a happy ending and, and Dylan went back and jammed with them and the 86 tour was wonderful for those who had a chance to see it. And there's official dead release of it dylan and the dead and there's bootlegs everywhere um it's it's, it's a really really good uh good tour and a great opportunity to hear these bands that just respected the hell out of one another playing together and and uh really making something out of it jerry's uh various bands played the tune somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60 to 70 times it's hard to get an accurate count the uh, jerry first played it on uh, january 15th 1972 at the keystone in san francisco with merle and it was last played by the jerry garcia band on march 4th 1995 at the warfield in san francisco so uh even a couple of times uh uh, a few months before his death, Jerry was still up there cranking out the tune, and uh, it's clearly a song that he loved to play, uh, would get very animated with it at times, great jams on it, and uh, just a lot of fun. So um, that's where we start off today with this lovely Jerry Garcia Merle Saunders show from 50 years ago. And uh, before we launch into some other stuff, I want to play one more tune here, because this is one of the tunes that originally turned me on to the whole Jerry Merle thing. The name of this song is Finders Keepers. Um, it's a song that for me opened up an entirely different side of Jerry. Uh, it's on the Keystone album with uh, Merle. And in fact, it, it may be the opening song if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, it was an album that I was listening to to get to other songs at the time that I, I knew uh, and recognized. 
but you know, if it's on the album and you wind up listening to the entire album. And I was always fascinated by it because it was, it was kind of a, a, a jazz fusion, if you will, uh, with Jerry and Merle, no vocals on this version of it. And that, uh, repeated refrain, uh, that they keep playing over and over that was, I just found to be absolutely captivating, uh, and really, really, uh, made me, uh, appreciate Jerry and Merle so much. Uh, the album also has Positively Fourth Street, a, a great Dylan cover, um, a number of other tunes that, that really turned me on. But this Finders Keepers, I thought, was just really something. And I would find myself going back to the album sometimes just to play this song once or even twice in a row because I found it uh, so creative and, and, and so enjoying. It's uh, The song was written by General Johnson, a member of the group Chairman of the Board, and Jeffrey Bowen, who was the producer of Chairman of the Board. Uh, the song was originally released by the Chairman of the Board as a single with a vocal version of the song on the A side and this instrumental version of the song on the B side. Chairman of the Board is an American-Canadian, Detroit, Michigan-based soul music group who saw their greatest commercial successes in the 1970s. Um, and I did go and listen to the version with the vocals, and I have to say it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, Jerry and Merle uh, didn't get into the vocals. They just jammed on the tune, which was just as fine. Sometimes just getting that great kind of jam with a song like that, especially this one, which is is so melodic and uh, uh, has so much room to... to to, to improvise and, and grow with that it's just really really a great song and uh, uh it, it was performed oh about 20 times or so by garcia with uh the garcia saunders band legion of mary band and one or two others between 1973 and 1979 and then this song uh too kind of dropped off the radar screen after that uh which i think was unfortunate because it is such a nice tune but uh, once, you know, Jerry really started going hard uh, with the Jerry Garcia band, uh, it just was a tune that uh, for some reason didn't get as much playing time. Uh, and, and like I say, eventually fell out of the repertoire. But uh, it's worth going back and listening to the early Garcia Merle Saunders band performances of this tune, especially from the uh, original Keystone releases. And I think it's one that you'll really, really like. It, it, it is just nice to listen to. And I used to joke with my wife when we want to play music when we have people over for dinner. And sometimes, you know, you can put on Garcia, but or the Grateful Dead or whatever. It can be too loud. It can be too this. It can be too that. But this is a great song, like to have background music at a party or when you're having dinner with people and uh, you're looking for a little something that's lively enough to keep uh, the mood uh, in an upswing and going strong. But not so loud with lyrics or anything uh, that you find yourself either trying to talk over it or uh, dropping out of the conversation to listen to the lyrics. So uh, I'm a big fan of Finders Keepers, and uh, it was great that uh, they brought it out that night. And uh, this is a really, really uh, fun version of it, a little bit different than the version that's on Keystone. But I think that just speaks to the song's flexibility uh, and the ability of Jerry and Merle to kind of change it up and play it any way they wanted. Uh, and they, they, they really do a, uh, a great job of it here. Before we get back into more music from uh, this wonderful uh, Garcia Sanders show, we talked uh, last week about the fact that coming up was going to be two large concerts uh, featuring the Tedeschi Trucks Band, uh, the Garden Parties, they're called it. And uh, this past week on Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, maybe it was later, maybe it was Thursday, they played with Warren Haynes at Boston Garden. And then uh, just a couple of nights ago, uh, 
they played with Trey Anastasio and Nora Jones at Madison Square Garden. Um, so I guess it was Wednesday and uh, uh, Friday at this uh, Madison Square Garden show. Jones was out there on a uh, Fender Rhodes piano, uh, did a duet with Susan Tedeschi on a first time cover of John Hyatt's Have a Little Faith in Me, stuck around uh, later for the uh, Tedeschi Trucks Band live debut of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, You Wreck Me. And then Anastasio eventually joined the band for covers of The Who's The Seeker and two Derek and the Domino's favorites, Bell Bottom Blues and Layla. And recall a couple of years at Lockin, uh, Trey did the entire Layla album with uh, Tedeschi Trucks. So uh, this was just uh, old home week for him. Uh, and of course, The Seeker, I think, is, is really one of the greatest two songs of all time uh, th- that just doesn't get the, the recognition that it necessarily deserves, but it's just a good hard rocker. Uh, that comes out and the boys just really jam on it. And so uh, what a fun tune uh, to get to hear all of these, so many great performers coming out and uh, um, and playing that. I also love that they cover Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. You Wreck Me happens to be a really, really good song. But, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and, and maybe one day we'll do a show on them, that such a great band that, you know, fit into so many different categories, but notwithstanding the fact that many people could see them as pop or maybe not pop isn't fair to say, but more traditional type rock and roll songs, uh, they were a favorite of, uh, they, they toured with Tom Petty, excuse me, they toured with Bob Dylan. Um, uh, they, they, and they covered so many great songs uh, from all different genres of rock and roll. Tom Petty was just such an absolute unique talent and losing him in his uh, early sixties uh, was such a tragedy to the rock and roll scene. And I love the fact that uh, uh, Tedeschi Trucks is playing his tunes and that um, uh, uh, Trey is out there, or Nora Jones is out there doing it with them. How great is that? Uh, when, when one tremendous rock and roll band recognizes another tremendous rock and roll band, and uh, uh, we, we get these kind of songs. Uh, Lucas Nelson opened and then returned to the stage later with Jones and Anastasio, uh, for a show closing medley of uh, Sly and the Family Stones, Sing a Simple Song, and I Want to Take You Higher. Now, that's great stuff because Skadesky Trucks plays I Want to Take You Higher very regularly in concert. And it, it's always been one of my favorite Sly tunes. Um, gets covered by different bands from time to time. And it's a real crowd pleaser. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a true party tune. It's a true just kind of let your hair down and hang loose kind of tune. And... Uh, Tedeschi trucks do a fantastic job with it and, you know, to be able to have so much talent on one stage for, you know, one of these group sing-alongs like they always have with the, the big uh, um, rock and roll hall of fame events or things like that where everybody, and, and, and normally, uh, you know, you get forever young or, um, you know, one of those kind of tunes that they play all the time. So it's nice to have a little bit of a, uh, uh, a different one here and, um, be able to just really jam this stuff out with Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, it was Tedeschi Trucks' first headliner event at Madison Square Garden, which just kind of blows my mind because um, uh, Derek Trucks is no stranger to Madison Square Garden. Uh, he's played there with the Allman Brothers and and on other occasions. But uh, uh, on the one hand, I say it's about damn time. Tedeschi Trucks is awesome, and uh, they deserve to headline Madison Square Garden on that big stage. They're a band that can certainly pull it off. And then on the other hand, there's always that slight tinge of regret that, oh my God, this band that I love to go see and it's harder and harder to get tickets for uh, as more and more people discover just how great they are. Uh, transferring to Madison Square Garden for some shows just sends the message loud and clear uh, that, you know, not that anybody doubted whether these guys were here or not, but how mainstream they 
they are and how uh, accepted they are that they're playing in such large venues and uh, and selling them out. Now, of course, as we all know, Trey is absolutely no stranger to Madison Square Garden as Fish uh, has played there, uh, I believe now, more than any other band, although I always forget where they stand with Billy Joel because he always has long residencies there too. But I'm sure some of our Fish listeners can answer that question. But nevertheless, uh, Madison Square Garden is just such a wonderful place to see a show uh, and to get to see so much talent on one stage uh, is hard to top, except, of course, if you looked at the night or two nights before in Boston uh, when Tedeschi Trucks was joined by Warren Haynes. Um, now, this is this is a, a huge event on so many levels. First of all, anytime Warren Haynes shows up to play with anybody anywhere, it auto- automatically makes it a must-see or must-go-back-and-listen-to concert. Warren brings out the best in the people that he plays with, uh, his multi-talent in rock and roll, his singing, his guitar playing, uh, his love of, of old, deep-cut songs, uh, as well as his ability to swing right over to newer ones. Um, just an amazing man, just an amazing level of talent. Um, and, and, you know, I always kind of wonder if that's what Jerry would have been like if Jerry had taken a little more time uh, to go around and play with other people and other groups and, and, uh, and have a chance to modify their sounds. But, but anytime you get Warren Haynes on stage, uh, you're in for a great night. Now, couple it with the fact that, of course, Warren and Derek Trucks uh, were the heart and soul of the uh, guitar sound for the Allman Brothers for a number of years and their, their, their annual residencies in the Beacon Theater and uh, everywhere they went. And, um, you know, we, we've talked about the Almonds, and for those of us that were too young to ever have had a chance to see Dwayne, I have to believe that Derek Trucks is as close as you can get to channeling Dwayne Allman. And when you put him and Warren together, it's just this little special energy and music. They know each other so well. Uh, and it's just wonderful uh, to have an opportunity to have them together on stage again like that. And, of course, uh, they had to dive right into the Allman, Blother, Allman Brothers with a, uh, a blue sky, which, you know, is it that it has to be at the top, if not the top of everybody's uh, favorite Allman Brothers song or tunes. Um, and they also covered the Allman Brothers' Dreams. Uh, they covered Van Morrison's Into the Mystic and Dr. John's I Walk on Gilded Splinters, which is a tune that Tedeschi Trucks has been playing with some regularity now over the last year or two. Uh, that's a wonderful song. It's always fun to hear Tedeschi Trucks play it. And again, to get Warren and his interpretation on there as well uh, is just absolutely wonderful. Um, so, uh, and we all talked about how Derek Trucks had made a surprise appearance with Fish up at SPAC. Um, we, we played some music from that and, uh, you know, this is what a fun time. These guys all love each other. They all love to get together. They all love to play. The fans love to see them. Uh, I, I get it that with all of their various schedules, uh, it must be a logistical nightmare to try and find a time when they're all available and they're all in the same city or close enough that they can get together like this. But the thing that I, I really like about it is how flexible they all are and how, uh, you know, Derek Trucks can walk out for a show here. Trey can walk out for a show there. Uh, Warren can seem to, you know, just drop in on anybody's shows. And it's 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 just really fun. Uh, they clearly enjoy it. The crowds love it. And it's a wonderful thing to see. So for those of you who were lucky enough last week uh, to have a chance to drop in on some of those shows, Good for you. For those who weren't, um, you can find recordings of it just about everywhere, and they are uh, they're great recordings. Uh, 
great versions of these tunes and other songs that maybe aren't as well known that they play so well. And a, another uh, round of live music that I would highly recommend people go out and check if you're looking for something to do, uh, a musical soundtrack for whatever you're doing on a weekend or on a, a night after work and you're getting together with people. Uh, that's just great, great music to be able to have and to, and to sit and listen to. And I would highly recommend it. So now diving back in to uh, our show, uh, Jerry Garcia, Merle Saunders from 50 years ago today. Uh, the next song we're going to play is a song that everybody knows. If you listen to uh, just popular music, it's kind of hard not to have heard it, even if you didn't even necessarily know the song or where it's from. Uh, it's out there and, and people just tend to sing along with it. So here it is. Harder They Come is a reggae song by Jamaican singer Jimmy Cliff. It was first recorded for the soundtrack of the 1972 movie of the same name, which is a great movie if you've never seen it. Uh, it was supposed to have been, in the movie, it was supposed to have been written by the film's main character, uh, Ivanhoe Martin. In 1969, Jimmy Cliff met film director Perry Hartzell, excuse me, Hensel, who was intending to make a film about a musician who turned to crime. Cliff agreed to take the lead role, and the film was shot over the next two years. During filming, Cliff came up with the line, The Harder They Come. Hensel thought it was a good idea, to, it was a good title for the film, and asked Cliff to write and record a theme song for it. Um, it was recorded, uh, first track uh, at Muscle Shoals in 1971, uh, film for inclusion, uh, as we say, in the movie, uh, with a great room of line, a uh, great lineup of musicians. Uh, Cliff later recorded a reggae track of the song in Jamaica in 1972. Um, it's been covered by, again, uh, just a, a long, long list of, of who's who. Uh, the Jerry Garcia Band uh, covered it, and in particular, they cover it. Uh, one, of the, one of the releases from the Jerry Garcia Band is the Keen, K-E-A-N, Keen College Show from February 2nd, 1980. One of my favorites because it has a great after midnight into uh, Eleanor Rigby, back into After Midnight, uh, uh, instrumental Eleanor Rigby, uh, that, that in and of itself is enough to go out and buy that. But then you get this great uh, The Harder They Come and, and a number of other great tunes on that album. So it was covered by Jerry Garcia Band. It was covered by Cher, covered by Keith Richards. Uh, B-side to his single, Run Rudolph Run from 1978. It was covered by bands as diverse as Rancid, Joe Strummer, Wayne Kramer, Moe, Willie Nelson, Guster, and Widespread Panic, and, and so many more. The song was performed 
uh, over 350 times by uh, Jerry Merle and by other Jerry uh, and by the Jerry Garcia band and other Jerry combinations between 1973 and 1985. Uh, the lyrics and music for the song are included in the Jerry Garcia songbook, clearly a song with which Jerry was enamored. Now, my apologies. I didn't at the beginning give you a uh, uh, enough of a description because in this one, uh, there's there's who are these other musicians in the background? Well, on this show that we're listening to from 50 years ago, uh, we had Jerry, of course, on guitar and vocals. Merle on his keyboard. And how about Merle's keyboards on this song? They're, 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 they're in the background and yet featured up front all at the same time. They add a whole uh, atmosphere to the song that I think really is what makes it such a great tune uh, with, with his strong playing. John Kahn, a, a standard with Jerry on bass. Bill Vitt, another Jerry standard on drums. Um, but this one included a number of guests. Uh, Sarah Falker on vocals. We'll be hearing her in a few minutes. Matt Kelly on harmonica. Roger Jelly Roll Troy on bass and also vocals, and we'll be hearing him in a few minutes. Uh, Martin Fierro on sax and Bill Atwood on trumpet. Now, the trumpet was also very, very uh, noticeable in this version of the song, and uh, that's just another great thing. Jerry brings in tremendous musicians, tremendous performers, and uh, they all find a way to make the song fit so that they all have a chance to uh, showcase their talents. And when you take all of that uh, different types of music and it's all combined together, it really creates a very, very special sound. And this is a great example of that on, uh, from this concert, uh, a song that Jerry just loved and always got a great reaction from the crowd because uh, in, in college, I guess I could say, is when I first really got into Jimmy Cliff. And even before I could tell you that I was a, a, you know, a huge reggae fan, I, I knew who Bob Marley was and I had heard Bob Marley. But this Jimmy Cliff album uh, is just so tremendous. It was definitely the soundtrack for a large part of my uh, college life and a song, uh, an album that would often be played uh, at big parties or even just get-togethers on the front porch drinking beer and watching it pour down rain, meaning we couldn't be outside playing softball or whatever else we'd be doing. And it was always an album that would pop up somewhere in the playlist of, of people when they were entertaining uh, or when people were just looking for some good music to listen to. And Jerry, of course, that that's right up his alley. Uh, he, and he's, he took it and uh, he's really made it, uh, uh, made it a song uh, for himself. And it became so popular and so strong within the, the, the Grateful Dead community that Phil Lesh and friends have played it, Billy and the Kids have played it, Voodoo Dead have played it, Bob Weir has covered it. And why not? It's, it's just a fun song all the way around. People love it. And uh, it, it's, it's really, really great to listen to um, and uh, really a good one. Now, this 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 next song from the show uh, that I want to play is, is over the years become one of my favorite uh Jerry Garcia covers uh, that he plays. We'll get into the whole history of it in a minute. Um, but while you're listening to this, please listen for uh, Bill Atwood on trumpet and Sarah Fulker on vocals. And uh, then we'll come back on the other side and talk about it. Thank you. 
that's all right, Mama. Uh, if you're a fan of the Jerry Garcia band, you know that this song gets played all the time. Uh, it's an upbeat tune, Jerry really jamming on the guitar. Uh, but this version is just special. Sarah Fulker on vocals is just absolutely amazing and brings a whole nother uh, view with which you can take a look at this song and listen to it and, you know, just understand uh, what a fun song it is. It's got a great background. It was, it was written by Arthur Big Boy Crudup. It was originally recorded by him in Chicago on September 6, 1946, as That's All Right. Uh, some of the lyrics are traditional blues verses, first recorded by Blind Lemon Jefferson in 1926. Crudup's recording was released as a single in 1947 by RCA, uh, but was less successful than some of his previous recordings. One of the experts who considered the Crudup recording to be the first rock and roll song is Southeastern Louisiana University rock historian Joseph Burns, who adds, this song could contain the first ever guitar solo break and, and it, it sounds like a rock and roll tune right when you're hearing it and, and uh the, the, the it's it's the uh, guitar solo breaks that make this song uh, as special as it is but continuing on with the history elvis presley's version was recorded on july 1954 uh, while recording it recording an album as part of a trio called the blue moon boys the band played that's all right in between takes and the ump tempo style characteristic of rockabilly caught the attention of studio executive Sam Phillips, who asked for a refinement of the interpretation that was later recorded. Uh, the song was released under its original title, That's All Right, and names of the performers as Elvis Presley, and the Presley version was not identical to Crudup's song, since it was at least twice as fast as the original. His version is considered by some music critics as one of the records that was the first again in rock and roll, in the rock and roll genre. In 2004, article in The Guardian argues that Presley's version being one of the first records of rock and roll was simply one of the, rather than being one of the first records of rock and roll, was simply one of the first white artists' interpretation of a sound already well established by black musicians almost a decade before. A raucous, driving, unnamed variant of rhythm and blues. And that's a great line, too. Uh, to make sure uh, that people of color and black for performers from the early part of the last century uh, who really, whose, whose songs form the foundation and the basis for so much of what we call rock and roll today. And uh, this song was so pivotal in that whole uh, transition over. Um, and, and, I, and, and I love the fact that, you know, Ryder was really willing uh, to call that out and, and, and argue that this is not uh, Elvis Presley creating rock and roll. Uh, this is Elvis Presley interpreting somebody else's music that is actually the foundation for rock and roll. Now, admittedly, uh, the Elvis phenomenon was such uh, that, uh, you know, if he started performing a tune uh, that instantly gave it credibility to a much larger audience of people who might not otherwise necessarily be as focused in on music being performed by black musicians at the time uh, and, and, and certainly gave it a, a, a national presence, um, anything that Presley did. And there's strong arguments to be made, of course, uh, the, the, the pivotal role that Elvis Presley played in the rock and roll revolution. But it's just important to remember that Elvis was doing it with songs written by a lot of other people, uh, a lot of uh, performers of color, and it was a sound that he was able to take. And uh, again, as a white performer, uh, 
uh, interpreting a song by black musicians. It was the way that a lot of this uh, music was introduced to white America. And uh, I think most people who have been introduced to it are very, very thankful uh, about this, not only to guys like uh, Big Boy Crudup and uh, other performers who have performed it, but that the song and the music is kept alive today, uh, most notably by the Jerry Garcia band who, who played it regularly. Uh, from 19, well, uh, Jerry, uh, Merle, Legion of Mary, any any variations you wanted to, to, to do, but it was, a, it was a staple of shows that Jerry played from the 1970s right up until the end of 1995, uh, you know, one of his last uh, few performances, he was still playing it. The Grateful Dead only played it once again with the Allman Brothers on June 10th, 1973. Uh, so if you're, again, wondering the importance of going out and seeing uh the boys play together from that period of time. Uh, that's a, just a great show, you know, and as I'm going through and doing all of this and I'm looking that up, I'm like, wow, there's another show uh, from June 10th, 1973. But this is a great one. Since I've, since putting this show together, I've been going back and pulling out a lot of the, uh, the live Jerry's and the pure Garcia's and all the Jerry stuff that's been put out. And that's all right. Mama's on, on almost every one of them, but every one of them sounds a little bit different than the one before. And it, it's just a, a great, great tune to listen to. When the Garcia band plays a lot of uh, a lot of Jerry's music uh, in, in that uh, performances, uh, tended to be not always quite as rocking and rowdy uh, as 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 Dead shows. I mean, definitely played Deal and other songs and uh, others in there. But but this is a song where Jerry just lets loose, and you can just tell how much he loves it, how much he loves the whole rockability esque features of it. Um, I'm sure for him, you know, when he was growing up, Elvis uh, was big. There must be a certain amount of joy in being able to to play Elvis. And uh, although I couldn't find anything that speaks to it directly, Jerry, being a student of music, must have known all about Arthur Big Boy Crudup. And uh, it would be fascinating to find out where Jerry heard it for the first time and uh, what really inspired him to dive into it, other than the fact that it was just a great showcase, showpiece, I should say, um, for him to just get out there and, and display his talents. But again, you know, during this, you can hear Merle in the background just uh, uh, with, with his uh, with his great sound. Uh, and of course, Bill Atwood on trumpet and uh, Sarah Volker with her. That It's that kind of uh, loud, excited, almost there's almost a sense of urgency in her singing as she's belting it out. Uh, that just makes it really special uh, and, and a lot of fun for folks to listen to. And I, and I really, really enjoy it a lot. And uh, as always, anything we play on this show, uh, strongly, strongly recommend to other people. So if you can, if you can, if you can find it, great, go ahead and find it and, uh, and, and, and really enjoy it. And then just go back and listen to its version on other Garcia tunes. And it'll really make you appreciate this version and, and how special it is. We have more to go from the Jerry Garcia show, uh, but we are going to turn our attention now to the other side of what we do, marijuana. Thank you, Dan. Your 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 uh, your song investigation and research is always a plus as we head into these marijuana segments. And of course, that's a tune that Tedeschi Trucks has covered a lot and always leaves people walking out of their uh, shows with a big smile on their face, both because of the music and because you know 
let's all go get stoned. So let's turn our attention to the world of marijuana and see exactly what we got cooking today. Um, first, want to start off by thanking our friends over at Marijuana Moment uh, for all of their great news reporting and the ability for us to be able to lock into some of that and bring this to you, uh, both as news and a little bit of conversation and really talk about what's going on. So last week, we talked about how the federal government uh, had, had now changed the uh, marijuana usage and whether or not people who use marijuana uh, could get uh, clearance and could work for the government in sensitive positions. And the wonderful thing they came up with was that prior marijuana use uh, would not uh, eliminate you anymore, but current marijuana use would. And we all laughed at that and said, well, you know, that's just not the right way to do it because uh, how often do you have a situation where you're uh, worried about somebody who smoked marijuana 10 years ago or even five years ago versus people who test positive right now uh, meaning that so much of the potential workforce out there, so many of the potential of the people that could really come in and be very good government employees, very talented and skilled people are going to automatically get eliminated because uh, they still like to use a product, which in their state presumably is legal, or even if it's not legal, uh, but we won't go down that road again, other than to say that the state of Michigan did it right. And the state of Michigan uh, has removed offsite testing, if you will. In other words, um, what they said was, we don't penalize people who drink alcohol on Friday night. So why should we penalize somebody who uses marijuana on Friday night? And I have to tell you, you know, to hear something like that just makes me happy. Chase Bolger, who is the chairman of the Michigan Civil Service Commission, said that this was something that they had to do. And he made this recognition. Uh, we're going to treat people who drink alcohol and people who smoke marijuana. We're just going to treat them the same. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you know, this show would argue uh, that it ought to be flipped and that you ought to be treating people who smoke marijuana a little more favorably because uh, if you got high on Friday night, you come into work on Monday, it's long forgotten. If you got really toasted on Friday night and you had a long night bender drinking and drinking by Monday, you still may not be uh, 100%. Uh, but nevertheless, this is what a, what a huge step forward. And so, uh, right, if you, owners of businesses shall not require testing for marijuana uh, as a drug test for a new hire uh, for a position that is not otherwise test designated. And they said, obviously, if you want to get a commercial driver's license, if you're operating heavy equipment or machinery, if you're in law enforcement or corrections, a healthcare provider, if you're working with hazardous or explosive materials, okay, you know, I, I, I can understand that. And I think that most people can reasonably understand that. We don't want somebody uh, showing up for work who's high. But by the same token, we also shouldn't eliminate people for consideration from doing those jobs because they got high when they were not at work on their when they were on their own time. And, and I think that for so many people that that's what this is really all about, right? We, we just want to be able to live our lives. We want to be able to do the things we want to do without worrying that just because our choices of things to do uh, are not part of the popular mainstream yet that are uh, still maybe frowned upon. And we'll talk about more of that in a minute, that it can be an eliminating factor. And as states go to legal marijuana and as the number of marijuana smokers and people who uh, approve of marijuana smoking in this country continues to rise higher and higher, it seems a shame that so many of these people uh, could potentially be eliminated from work considerations just because uh, of the method in which they like to intoxicate themselves and relax, uh, or even in some cases, provide medical relief for themselves. And we've had many conversations about all the tremendous uh, health benefits uh, that people are discovering from marijuana. And so 
this is a good thing. In 2022, the state of Michigan denied 151 people uh, who had already received conditional job offers after they tested positive for marijuana. Um, as a result of the rule change, just over 200 people who are currently barred from state government jobs can now become eligible uh, to reapply. And that's a great thing. Uh, uh, Michigan approved adult use marijuana legislation in 2018. Um in 2021, Michigan uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel submitted a legal opinion to another state commission arguing that residents fired from jobs for marijuana use outside the workplace are still eligible for unemployment benefits. Um, and, and this is important. Between adult use and medical marijuana sales, Michigan sold nearly $277 million in cannabis products in July of this year, beating a record set months before. Uh, the state is seeing these consistent record-setting sales as the average cost of marijuana has remained at record lows, with the price of an ounce for adult use cannabis now hovering around $98. Um in 21, the, the cost of an ounce was $180, which quite frankly, uh, for those of us who've been getting high for a long time, is, is unbelievably low. Um, and, and another bill recently approved or introduced to the legislature in Michigan would legalize psychedelic plants and fungi so long as activities like cultivating and distributing the substance are done without receiving money or other valuable consideration, which is the loophole that we always have to have. You know, you can grow it and you can give it to people, just not for money. Um but, but this is just so important to see uh, that a state is willing to make this equivalence, if you will, this normalization that, yes, we live in a society where people smoke marijuana. We can no longer ignore it. In our state, we've made it legal, and we're raking in the tax shares off of $277 million in cannabis products. So it's not fair to penalize those very same people who are contributing to this by then turning around and saying, oh, you know, if you test positive, uh, you're out. We, we can't hire you with the government. You can't take government jobs. You can't do anything that might be considered sensitive or this or that or whatever. Um, even though uh, they're telling these same people, not only are you allowed to go out and purchase these products and consume them, uh, but every dollar you spend is helping to support the state of Michigan. So to be consistent, to be fair, uh, it seems like um, – that's the right way to go. And I think it is the right way to go. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get to a point where testing is such that, you know, even people who get high the night before work, uh, you know, should be able to go in. And, and there may come a time and, and hopefully not too far off in the future uh, when there'll be enough uh, understanding and enough normalization that people will say, um, you know, even if you certain jobs, of course, you know, I don't want the guy who's flying my airplane necessarily uh, to be high or drunk at the time of uh, takeoff and landing and all of that other stuff. But if you're a, if you're a desk worker, if you're, if you're a research worker, if you're somebody, you know, whose, whose job doesn't directly interact with other people or does in a way um, that, uh, you know, doesn't occur, involve people's safety or anything else like that. Again, I'm not advocating that people should be going high, out and getting stoned all day long. Um, but for some people who rely on marijuana for medicinal reasons, whether it helps, uh, helps calm them mentally or helps them with physical ailments, for some people, smoking marijuana during the day is a necessary component of getting through the day. Um, and it, it, you know, again, depending on the types of jobs these people have, uh, it would seem unfair to deny them the, the access to what they call their medicine and rightfully so, because nobody says if you're on psychotropic drugs, which you get prescribed you and you take on a regular basis, you know, sure, everybody takes those in the morning before they go to work. 
Um, so why shouldn't somebody be able to uh, consume some marijuana uh, in the morning or in the afternoon or really whenever they want? Again, so long as you're responsible, you get your job done, you you know you're you don't drive while you're intoxicated, you know, and you don't do other things like that. And again, I'm, I'm walking a fine line here because I'm not advocating that people should be allowed to sit at their desks all day and get high. But I am advocating that we have to be, as a society, open and understanding, knowledgeable and sensitive to what we're doing. And as marijuana moves in and everybody who likes marijuana understands what's going on with it, the rest of society uh, still doesn't really quite understand what's going on with it. And, you know, for me, that raises some really, really interesting situations from time to time. For instance, how do we wind up in a situation where groups of people get together and they drink freely, but yet the marijuana side of it is still kind of hush-hushed or pushed off to the side or, oh, uh, it's okay to have a couple of bottles of alcohol or wine on your counter when people come over. Oh yeah, I'll have a drink. But you know, for a lot of people, if they walk over and they see a bong or a bag of marijuana sitting there, uh, they might react very, very differently to it. Uh, people will sit around and say, oh, gee, still smoking marijuana, man, so many years after college. Of course, the response always is, yeah, but you're still drinking beer so many years after college. It's hard to understand why alcohol consumption is so widely accepted in society, so widely accepted uh, everywhere, even though we all know the dangers of it. But, you know, it, it's become part of society. They serve it on airplanes. They serve it at parties. They, you know, they, oh, how come you're not an alcohol drinker? If we're going to go out, you have to have a bottle of scotch, you know, to be a, a, a real businessman. Or, you know, nobody can be a, a real gourmet diner without a, a full appreciation of red wine and all of this and all of that it's going it's to take a long time, folks, for us to get there. But there will come a day uh, when people who consume cannabis will be able to discuss it freely, talk about it freely, display it freely. Um, I just heard of a wedding uh, that I think is wonderful where uh, people went to the reception afterwards and they had a wine bar, they had uh, a buffet of food, and they also had a marijuana bar. And you could go over there and do one hits or bong hits or whatever you wanted uh, because the hosts recognized that for a lot of their guests, marijuana was their uh, was their substance of choice uh, for celebrations and things like that. Now, you just don't see that very often. Um, heck, I didn't even have it at my son's wedding. It wasn't even an option for my son's wedding. Not to, you know, people at weddings and everywhere will still go out and do that kind of thing. Um, but as a society, notwithstanding it, it, it's, its presence everywhere now, the financial benefits that uh, some municipalities and states are finding from it, um, the reduction in crime and everything else as we talk about it, people still can't quite get their heads around marijuana as a, as a normal substance, as a substance that people like to use, prefer to use. Um, and, and I think that as a society, that's something that we, we really have to strive to achieve so that it, it is a normal thing. Uh, and, and people won't necessarily judge you any harsher than they would if they saw you drinking a beer, if they see you smoking a joint. Um, and I think that rulings like this by the state of Michigan help us as a society move towards that normalization goal. So I'm, I'm happy to see that Michigan is doing it. I would like to see other states doing it. I would like to see the federal government uh, finally get around and make that full connection and allow it to be something uh, that we as a society just accept and aren't going to be uh, unnecessarily judgmental over. Uh, there's people out there who enjoy this and there's no reason for their lives uh, to be made any more difficult uh, because of these things. So hats off to the state of Michigan. Good for them. Very nice to see. Um, 
a topic we've been covering for a long time. The marijuana banking bill was amended uh, this past week in, in Senate committee markup. So uh, there was an, uh, an amendment adopted by the uh, Senate Banking Committee, and uh, the Treasury Secretary would now be given one year instead of 180 days to issue updated guidance to financial institutions that work with cannabis businesses that was first released under the Obama administration in 2014. Uh, that guidance requires banks, credit unions, and depository institutions to submit SARs, suspicious activity reports, if they service the cannabis industries. Now, the bill was amended with technical changes on language to language on how marijuana-related transactions should not be considered proceeds from an unlawful activity. Well, of course, guys, if you're going to have banking, the whole point of the banking is to get rid of the SARs and to get rid of all of this work that is uh, making it so difficult for banks. Banks have been, since 2014, federal banks have been allowed to do, have have allowed to transact business with marijuana companies, Um, but they have to submit these SARs. So if they're, an SAR in a typical transaction is you go into a bank and you try to withdraw more than $10,000 in cash or deposit more than $10,000 in cash, the bank is required to fill out an, an, an SAR. Uh, do we think that this is a part of uh, illegal activity? Do we think this is contraband? Um, you know, that kind of a thing. And they can say something like, nope, this we got this cash, but this guy runs a cash business and we've checked it out and this is normal versus, you know, we're very, very suspicious uh, about this person who comes in, uh, you know, with all of these $20 bills on a fairly regular basis and doesn't seem to have a legitimate business operation going anywhere. And then if the Fed see that, you know, then they can decide to step in, the bank can decide to, to toss the person out. Now, the, but language that was also revised requires the federal report on availability of access to financial services for minority-owned, veteran-owned, women-owned, tribal community-owned, and small state-sanctioned marijuana businesses. Yes, these, again, not that everybody, but especially uh, groups like that who don't otherwise have access to traditional banking services must be able to get that um, and is very, very important. Now, much of the focus on the negotiations <clears throat> has been on Section 10. We talked about this last time of the Secure and Fair Enforcement Regulations, the Safer Banking Act, which concerns preventing federal regulators from taking discriminatory enforcement against any, against any industry, which is a language favored by Republicans. The section was amended in several respects. One key change that seems responsive to issues raised by Senator Kevin Kramer, Republican of North Dakota, would strike a provision that would have given regulators discretion to request or impose penalties for a reason determined to be valid in the discretion of the agency. And then it was further revised to include businesses owned by the government, by government agents of China and Russia in a list of potential national security and illicit finance threats that may warrant suspicion by regulators. So I don't know, there's just a whole lot of stuff getting wrapped up in this still. Uh, Chuck Schumer pledged to bring the cannabis banking bill to the floor now as quickly as possible. He's committed to attaching legislation to incentivize state state and local cannabis expungements and gun rights from marijuana consumers. It's become clear, however, that lawmakers intend to seek further revisions when it reaches the floor and potentially crosses over to the House. Uh, For example, Representative Blaine Luton Kamer, a Republican from Missouri on the House Financial Services Committee, where the bill would likely would likely be referred upon Senate passage, uh, said that even after being amended, Section 10 still gives broad discretion to banking supervisors that could enable politically motivated discretion. And he goes on to say in its current state, the Safer Banking Act will not make it through the House. So big headline, lots of great news and stories behind this. People get excited. People see what's trying to be done. But at the end of the day, politics are politics. 
And although we've talked about Republicans like to get high and Republicans, and this is a very bipartisan issue, uh, we can see that when it gets down to brass tacks, uh, in fact, it can still be a very political issue. Uh, and anytime we're getting to a level of uh, federal control, um, we're always going to have disagreements uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And so on this side, on this one, uh, we do have Republican pushback. Um, and really what's fascinating here also is that typically uh, the bill, uh, safe versions of the safe bill have been passing right through the House of Representatives by large majorities, and it's the Senate where they've got bogged down. And now under the SAFER Act, we're seeing based on ways it's being amended uh, that the anticipation is even if it makes it through the Senate, it might run into trouble in the House. So, um, you know, just to repeat uh, a line from uh, uh, my good friend Rob Hunt, Unfortunately, this just doesn't seem to be going anywhere where we'd like it to be going anytime soon. And um, it's out there in the news and everybody sees it and everybody talks about it. Everybody gets a lot of confidence. The stock prices go soaring up because um, people see this. And then a week later, once again, the the reality of it's not going to make it through the House. It's not going to make it through the Senate hits. Then the stock prices crater back down. Everybody says, oh, my God, what happened? Um, I'm, I'm taking the Rob Hunt approach. I'll believe it when I see it. Until then, I'll I'll keep talking about it and reporting on it, but I'm not making any plans or any changes, and I'm not advising my clients to make any plans or any changes uh, because the hope hope that this will change anytime soon, um, unfortunately, really just remains a hope and isn't necessarily getting us any closer to the realization of uh, full banking services. And again, do not be fooled by people who say there's full banking services. It is allowed legally. But with so many bells and whistles and potential landmines for the banking industry that it's no wonder such a large segment of the banking industry still refuses to touch cannabis. And those few that are willing to get involved with it impose ridiculously high fees and expenses and their own requirements uh, that this long into it. Remember, uh, 2014 was when Colorado and Washington went legal. And here we are 10 years later, and we still don't have a federal banking system uh, that takes this uh, this industry into account. And that's just not right. That's, that's really, really a shame. And again, I think so much of it has to do with the negative thoughts about marijuana that are out there, the negative press that it gets, uh, the people who are against it yelling and screaming. Um, but as this show always does, we will never fail and fail to take an opportunity to kick those people very strongly in the ass. And our final marijuana story today, tell me if you haven't heard this one before, young adults had significant reductions in marijuana use after legalization. This time, however, it's found in a study published by the American Medical Association, the AMA, which is the leading physicians uh, association in the country. Uh, And they found that young adults who used marijuana frequently before legalization showed significant reductions in use and consequences following the policy change according to a new study of data published by the American Medical Association that challenges the widespread worry that ending prohibition will lead to a dangerous rise in youth cannabis. Consumption did kick up slightly among young adults who claim not to have had not to have used marijuana prior to legalization, but that slight rise didn't lead to a corresponding increase in cannabis-related consequences, says the study, which was published last week in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. These findings suggest that cannabis legalization 
uh, high-risk young adults show different patterns of change. Those using cannabis frequently pre-legalization exhibited reductions consistent with aging out, and those not using cannabis pre-legalization exhibited modest increase in use over time. And so they note that despite common fears that legalization might lead to higher rates of teen marijuana use, there is a dearth of research focusing on this population. In all jurisdictions where cannabis legalization takes place, a key concern has been that cannabis use and related harms would increase among youth and young adults due to easier access, growing social acceptability, declining perception of harm, lower prices, a wide array of products and modes of use, and increasing, an increasing product potency, the study acknowledges, noting that young adults typically have the highest rate of cannabis use, as well as the highest, highest prevalence of uh, any potential issues arising out of that use. Nevertheless, it continues, there have been few longitudinal studies examining the impact of legalization, which represents a substantial research gap. So what does this mean overall? That once again, uh, legalization of marijuana not only does not lead to an increase in teenage use, it leads to a decrease in teenage use. People don't like to hear this. People argue against marijuana. People say, nope, we don't believe that. That's 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 just uh, propaganda put out by the marijuana industry. But one by one, we've been seeing mainstream medical groups coming back, and not just medical groups, other groups that go out and do these studies, and consistently across. And this has been consistent since when I attended my first uh, MJ Biz conference in Seattle in in 2013. Uh, this was a topic that was being discussed. When I went to my first normal legal committee meeting in 2014, uh, this was a huge topic of conversation. Uh, uh, Paul Armentano and Mason Tavert and Steve Fox in their book, we, they were showing results of this ages ago. And now finally, AMA has gotten on board with it. And hopefully when you see that, you say as a result of it, uh, that more and more people will get on board with it. And maybe this leads to some relaxed testing rules. Maybe this leads uh, to opening up uh, businesses because nobody, uh, banking, because nobody says, well, I don't want to be part of an industry uh, that's polluting or corrupting the minds of our, of our youngsters. But there's no medical basis not to. We're not polluting teenagers. Teenagers are reducing the amount of marijuana they smoke. Why? Maybe because if your parents are smoking it, it's just not cool. That's a popular theory. That works for me. But at the end of the day, the reason isn't what's important. What's important is that we have seen that legalizing marijuana for consenting adults who want to use it responsibly uh, in no way helps promote an increase among teenagers. So please, all of you anti-prohibitionist folks out there, can we just drop that argument once and for all and not have to keep coming back and making a big fuss about it and accept the fact that uh, marijuana does have uh, a reasonable place in society and that by doing it, we're not sacrificing the next generation uh, for this generation's enjoyment. So very, very important stuff. I would really hope that people would get around to this once and for all and really understand what we're talking about. There's no better way, no better way to say that um, than this next tune from our show from 50 years ago. Maybe you'd 
would have to have been living under a rock your whole life not to know this song. Uh, I second that emotion is 1967 song written by Sonny uh, Smokey Robinson and Al Cleveland. First charting as a hit for Smokey Robinson and the Miracles in 1967. It was later a hit single for uh, group duet Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations. Also on the Motown label, One Morning in 1967, the story goes, Robinson and Cleveland were shopping at Hudson's, a Detroit department store. Robinson found a set of pearls for his wife, Claudette. They're beautiful, he said to the salesperson. I sure hope she likes them. Uh, Cleveland then added, I second that emotion. Both songwriters laughed at Cleveland's uh, malpropism. Uh, he had meant to say, I second that motion. The two were immediately uh, inspired to write a lovely song uh, using this very, very incorrect fra- phrase. Um, it was performed a handful of times, uh, seven uh, total by the Grateful Dead in April of 1971. For one month and then it was gone. Um, they played it the first time on April 8th, 1971 at the Music Hall in Boston. They played it for the last time, not even, uh, or just barely 20 days later on April 29th, 1971 at the Fillmore East. On the flip side, uh, the song was always part of the Jerry Band's repertoire from 1973 through 1994, and they estimate Jerry must have played it well over 200 times. Certainly uh, one of his favorite songs to play, a song that you never get tired of. And as we were just saying before, let's get marijuana out there. Let's make it accessible. Let's stop uh, all these crazy uh uh, fights against it, second that emotion, man, and let's make this all happen. So uh, a timely tune there, Jerry playing Smokey Robinson, um, and more good stuff. So uh, we are once again getting uh, to the end of our time here. Uh, producer Dan is giving me those frantic signals, which says I've somehow once again managed to uh, slide past an hour. But quite frankly, folks, when we're sitting here talking about the Grateful Dead and marijuana, it gets hard to stop, right? This is good stuff. Love talking about it. Love thinking about it. Love listening about it. And, you know, love trying to help us move towards a way uh, where everybody's smoking freely um, it, without all of these uh, hangups around us and uh, being able to listen to our wonderful Grateful Dead music wherever and uh, whenever we have a chance to do so. Uh, we're going to we're going to sign out here in one second with a, a final song. Um, from this uh, October 2nd, 1973 show. It's called Sweet Little Angel. Uh, It was written by B.B. King and Jules Taub in September of 1956. Some say it's an adaption of Black Angel Blues written by Lucille Bogan uh, in December uh, 1930. And we talked about uh, Lucille Bogan last week as well on uh, uh, other tunes that the Grateful Dead have played uh, that, that, that she had a hand in writing. Uh, as far as this song goes, in 1956, B.B. King recorded Sweet Little Angel. And according to King, I got the idea for Sweet Little Angel from Robert Nighthawk's Sweet Black Angel, though I later discovered that the song had been recorded uh, by someone before Nighthawk. At the time, black was not a popular word as it is now. Instead of using the old title, B.B. King says, I changed it to Sweet Little Angel, and that was a pretty big record for me. King's version, which included a horn section, was a stylistic shift for the song, and it became a hit, reaching number eight on Billboard in 1957. He re-recorded Sweet Little Angel for his first album, Singing the Blues. Both versions uh, prominently feature B.B. King's guitar work uh, with his note bend sounding almost like uh, a lap steel in places. And uh, Jerry and Merle and the gang really just kill it here. Uh, another great tune for them to play. Uh, 
another great tune with a really interesting background and overall just a beautiful tune. So I'm going to leave you all with Sweet Little Angel by Jerry Garcia and Merle Saunders 50 years ago today. Everyone have a great week. We'll have uh, more wonderful stuff to talk about next week, more great Grateful Dead music, and we hope you will tune in then. Uh, please be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.